We are nearing the finish line of our series on Psalms 1 through 25, uh, Kiss the Sun. We have one more week after today. Psalm 25 will be next Sunday. And then beginning in April, the second week of April, we'll start a new series on the book of 1 John, and that will be titled The Gospel Transformed Life. As we look at Psalm 24 today, we'll see a joyous celebration, a parade. Everybody loves a parade. It was a parade celebrating the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And in later years, this psalm would have been part of Israel's liturgy uh, for the return of the Ark after a battle. So when Israel would go to war, they would bring the Ark of the Covenant out. It would go before them into battle. And that was to show that God was with them. And then upon their return, this psalm served as part of their worship upon the return to Jerusalem. David is the author of this psalm, and he's been much, you know, authored much of the psalms that we've looked at. Um, there are other authors of the psalms the further you go into the book, but this first section, also called the first book of the psalms, um, which 1 through 25 makes up as a good-sized portion of that, are mostly authored by David. He desired to build a house for the Lord, but God would not permit him to build a permanent house for the ark. Rather, that would fall to his son Solomon. And David would build a tabernacle or a tent to house it. David knew that God made himself especially present to Israel through the Ark of the Covenant. And so David's desire was to be as near as he could to the presence of God. We're going to see in this passage that God, the mighty creator and sustainer of all that is, the King of glory, would come down to his people and live among them in the person of Jesus. And we'll also see that now, as new covenant people, new covenant believers, we have the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the presence of God is now within us, not in a wooden box covered with gold, not in one individual person, but in all of us who are believers. The title for today's message is, Who is this King of Glory? And today we're going to look at the king of the world, the king of righteousness, and the king of glory. So why don't we go ahead and read Psalm 24. Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded, founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you uh, for the truth that we know lies therein. And we ask, Lord, that you would just open our eyes to see it this morning. Give us eyes of faith to see what your word proclaims. 
Lord, open our hearts to receive your word, and that we might be encouraged, that we might be built up and edified in you. Lord, that you might disciple us and grow us into the people that you would have us to be, that we would live as gospel-transformed people. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are within us through your Holy Spirit right now, that you're near to all of us who are believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the king of the world, in verses 1 and 2, this psalm begins with a declaration of God's sovereign control over the works of his hands, all of creation. Verses 1 and 2 reads, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth and nature, they, they show us God's beauty. You know, we live in a very beautiful place. I've lived in Minnesota, I've lived in Louisiana, and both have a unique beauty to them. Um, Louisiana, you know, I was just down there driving through with my family, heading towards the funeral, which was actually in Dallas. But I was kind of purposely looking because it's, you know, been a while since I'd been down there. And I, Chanel and I talk often about the difference between the beauty of kind of rural New York and especially places like Letchworth and Watkins Glen and things like that. Um, but I wanted to really pay attention to, you know, the nature and the landscape of Louisiana. And it's got a unique beauty to it. You know, it's swampy, um, has a unique odor. Um, <laughs> the the dirt there is more clay than, than dirt. Um, and then, you know, heading into East Texas, there was more rolling hills and plains and all that good stuff. And then Dallas, there's this unique beauty of interstate and buildings, <laughs> lots and lots and lots of cars. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge to to drive on a freeway that's got like seven or eight lanes of, of traffic going 85, 90 miles per hour. And you just kind of hang on and uh, hope you, you make it. But the earth and nature, they all tell a story of God's beauty and his creation. And you just have to spend any amount of time out in nature to see that. You know, looking up at the night sky. Um, we just went near Canisius Lake the other day for breakfast, Chanel and I were just driving around West Lake Road and then around East Lake Road, and it's just beautiful. You know, it was, it was sunrise, and it was, it was gorgeous. John Kelvin wrote that there is not an atom of the universe in which you cannot see some brilliant sparks, at least, of his glory. So nature is full of God's glory. To worship nature, though, or any part of nature, would be idolatry. So when we look at nature and it tells us of God, our praise is not for nature, but it's for the God who made nature. It's for the God who created. But nature is a beautiful display of God's creative power, and in it we see the beauty of God. We see beauty, brilliance, color, and even chaos. The crashing waves, towering mountains, the gentle breeze, the icy blast of winter, the smell of spring flowers, the warmth of the summer sun, and the colors of autumn leaves. Scripture is telling us here that the earth is the Lord's. It is his handiwork that we see. Verse 1 shows us the sovereignty of the king. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's not just that the earth itself is the Lord's, but all that's in it. Everything that we see. The word fullness there means all that fills it. 
So everything, everything that is, owes itself to him. All of life is dependent on him for existence and breath and life. So this means that everything that we see, even right now inside this room where there's not a lot of nature, just gray walls and wonderful people, everything here is dependent on him. And it's all upheld by God's power. The earth is the Lord's. All of life, from the smallest single cell organism to the most complex of creation, mankind, we're all dependent on God for life and existence. From crops to the sparrow to you and me, we depend on God for life. There are no stray atoms floating around acting outside of his sovereign control. And this has tremendous implications for us. See, our greatest fears and struggles are under the lordship of our king. Nothing happens without reason or without his permission. What do I mean when I say God is sovereign? Sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. He has the rightful authority, wisdom, freedom, and power to do all he intends to do. So God plans and governs all things. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So all that happens is according to his purposes, and what he purposes will be done. And you and I might purpose to do something. We might be well-intended. And it might get done. Or it might not. Chanel, please don't share any stories of me saying I would take the trash out and then I forget. But we do this. We forget. But God doesn't. And all that he plans comes to fruition. Now this does present us with a mystery. Does God cause evil? There's a phrase that Derek often shared, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and steal it. You know, somebody once told me that all truth is God's truth, so, you know, we don't necessarily have to, like, say, you know, Derek said this or whatever, but I'll give him credit for this one. God causes good, allows evil, but ordains all things. So God doesn't cause evil. He's not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil, but he is sovereign over evil. It does not take him by surprise. Sin entering the world did not take him by surprise. It's not an interruption of his eternal plan. And he works all things for the good of those called according to his purpose. And we see that in Romans eight twenty-eight. He permits agents of evil to work. And then through his sovereign providence, he overrules according to his plan. He raises people. He lowers people. Kingdoms rise and they fall according to his plan. The psalmist Bono wrote these words. October and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but you go on and on. 
But don't take his word for it. We actually see this in scripture, that kings and kingdoms, even evil ones, rise and fall according to his plan. Daniel 2, 20 through 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Job 12.23 says he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And though it seems impossible to us, he even has sovereignty over the hearts of kings and rulers. Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Exodus 7, 3 through 4, we see that happening. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So why did Pharaoh stall? Why did Pharaoh not give in? Because that was God's purpose. And he turned his heart like a stream of water. He hardened it. And God's sovereignty extends not just over kings' hearts, but to all hearts and all things. Even down to the roll of the dice, as seen in Proverbs, or a sparrow falling to the ground, as seen in the book of Matthew. None of these happen apart from the Lord. God is sovereign over all the earth and all that fills it. He exercises this authority over it because he created it. The creator gets that authority, that power. Verse 2 says, where he is founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He subdued the chaotic waters. He holds everything in his place. Paul tells us in his letter to the church at Colossae, That it was through Christ that all was created. This shows us that the whole of the Godhead was involved in creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit acted in creation together. And together they uphold the universe. Colossians 1, 16-17 For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm not a Greek scholar, but all things means all things. means everything. It's all held together by the Lord. God's sovereignty displays his care and concern over his creation. And this should comfort us. This should encourage us. To know just how powerful our God is. That all of this is in his hands. That's a great comfort. Our king is over all the world. And his glory is displayed. There are many leaders that have come and gone who thought that they had the power in their hands. And there will be many, should the Lord tarry, there will be many more who think the same. There are many right now who think this, but it's God who reigns over them. And that should give us as believers great comfort in this time. He is the king over all the world. And as we come 
to this next few verses here, we're going to see that his gaze as creator is now turned towards the creation who would enter his presence. We're going to see the king of righteousness. And we've seen God's sovereignty and, and through his work of creation that he is indeed almighty. He's glorious. But in these next few verses, in the context of what is written in Psalm 24, a celebratory processional, um, there would be some questions that were asked of those who were participating in it. These questions would have been asked by the priests to the worshipers, and, and they're essentially asking them, how do you come before the presence of this majestic creator? So we've just seen the one who created all things, who upholds all things, who is sovereign over all things, We've established his authority and his power. Now the priests turn to the people who are part of this procession and say, how do you come before this almighty creator? And so we're going to look at verses 3 through 6 here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And then verse 4 begins the people's answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Now when you read that, you might walk away asking several questions. Well, who can enter God's sanctuary then? Who really has clean hands or a pure heart? Pure heart means it's not defiled at all. Not just my motivations were good, but even that, whose motives are right. In Romans, we see that sometimes even our motives are coming from a wrong place. And even the best of our intentions, God still sees us filthy rags. The idea of lifting one's soul to what is false means to present your essential being the very part of you that is comprising your, your deep-seated emotions and heart and motivations, all of these things, who has not offered that up to nothingness or emptiness? What, what is false means emptiness. It means nothingness. Some translate that, that word false as an idol. And so what that is really saying is that those who have lifted up their soul to an idol is those who have lifted up their essential being, the very DNA of their existence, to worship emptiness, to worship nothing. And that's what idol worship is. It's emptiness. It's nothing. There's nobody on the receiving side of that. As we read this, I think we can honestly assess ourselves and say that this passage does not truly describe me. Because before Christ, I was unrighteous. My hands were not clean and my heart was not pure. And even afterwards, as a believer, sometimes my motivations aren't right and sometimes I act falsely. And while we may have never worshipped an image of wood or stone, most of us, before Christ saved us, we lived presenting our essential being to nothingness, to emptiness. And we've said it often in this series, and we dug deep into it when we looked at verse, uh, Psalms 14 through 16, that no one is clean, no one is good, no one is righteous on their own. Yet David and the other psalmists often repeat the idea of being blameless and having a righteousness that God accepts. 
David writes in Psalm 32 and verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. How can we be glad? How can we claim to be righteous and shout for joy? Well, David tells us at the beginning of this psalm. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The man at the end of Psalm 32 is the same man at the beginning of Psalm 32. The way you can rejoice, the way you can shout for joy, is because you are a forgiven person. And so God sees you as righteous, and and a forgiven person is a righteous person. This word blessed or blessed carries the idea of being gifted or graced. This is something that's been given freely. When you read this word throughout the book of Psalms or, you know, in Matthew, we see it often in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. When we see this word blessed or blessed, what we're seeing is that these things that it proceeds to tell us about have been given to you. You've been graced with these things. So you who are forgiven, whose sin is covered, you've been blessed with that. You've been gifted that. You've been graced with that. And Psalm 24 verse 5 tells us this as well, that a person with clean hands has received blessing or grace. And his righteousness is the righteousness of God counted towards him. Only by grace can one seek God. Just as Jacob, who was a liar and a cheat, was made into a worshiper of God. We will be made seekers and worshipers of God only by grace. And it's only from that position of resting in the grace of God, the finished work of Christ that has now been revealed to us who are living in the new covenant, that we can seek the Lord. We've been given the power and the grace in order to worship and seek. Mike shared last week that really it was God who pursued us. He sought after us and continues to seek after us. And he's not far. He's present with you. Whether you're at home, at work, in the car, at the gym. I'm not going to be there. But um, the Lord is with you there. You know, some of the best times that you will have with the Lord is when you're just walking around maybe taking a hike, maybe walking around, seeing God's beauty and his creation, spending time with him, just talking to him. You don't need to come here to this building to experience God's presence. Now, I want you to come here. I love being with you. I love gathering together, and gathering together is extremely important. But if you're at home, at work, you know, if you're laying in bed, getting ready for the day, brushing your teeth, something, I don't know, wherever you are, cooking dinner, eating dinner, those are good things. The Lord is with you. I want to draw your attention again to the reality that uh, the only way a believer can apply this to themselves is because the truer one standing on the holy hill of the Lord is Christ. We talked about this in Psalm 2, and then I I think it was, wow, my brain just went blank. I should have wrote this down. It was just in the last few weeks we spoke about this again, that 
the, the way that we can ascend the hill of the Lord is because there was a truer one who already ascended the hill. And as Psalm 2 said, the Lord placed him on the holy hill of the Lord. And that is Christ. So we've been clothed in his robes of righteousness because he had clean hands. We now have clean hands. Because he lived a blameless life, his blameless life has been counted towards us. And so we are blameless. We are righteous. We are uh, pure in our thought and mind because Christ was and is. And that's been applied to us. The king of righteousness has given us his righteousness so that we can stand in his presence. He's invited us in. He's invited us to be in his presence and he is in us. The worshiper, on hearing these questions and responding in the way that they did, would not have responded claiming an innocence or a righteousness of their own. They are showing and pointing to the righteousness of God that they are dependent on, that they've received as a gift. And as I was kind of going over my notes this morning, I decided to uh, throw in another scripture. I I did manage to put it in the slides, so... um, it is there, but we're going to look at Romans nine, fourteen through 18. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the king of righteousness gives us his righteousness. So Romans nine, fourteen through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. I was thinking this morning as I was just kind of going going over my notes about this king of righteousness and how when you're the king, you can show mercy to who you want to show mercy and what can anybody say? What can, what can the you know, courtiers and you know, all the other advisors say to the king if the king decides to have mercy on somebody? They can't say to him, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to overrule you on this one. He actually has done too much. He's done too much to deserve this mercy. The king gets to decide who that mercy is shown towards. And no one can overrule him. Christ has decided whom he will show mercy to. And it's not based on our record. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on whether we were the the best of the best. It doesn't matter the, the home that we were born into. It doesn't matter the background that we have. It doesn't matter, um, are you the most learned? Are you the most popular? Are you the most prominent? In fact, God often chooses the weaker things, the weaker people, the foolishness of this world. And he decides who he's going to have mercy on and declare forgiveness. It's his prerogative. And he hands it out graciously to those who will believe, to those who will repent and believe and receive him. He welcomes them in. And I think this is the reason that the religious elite missed it. They missed it when Jesus came because they looked at themselves and said, look at my pedigree. Look at who I am. Look at all the things that I've done for God. I know the Torah back and forth. I can, you know, recite it in my sleep. I know the extent of the law and I've kept most of it. 
I tithe on all my spices. You know, there's a passage in the New Testament that talks about that. Tithing on all of their spices. 10%, they give it all to the Lord. But the king of righteousness can, can decide who he shows mercy and favor towards. And he's not looking at those things. And so he invites us into this parade. He invites us into this processional. We can join in with the king of glory. Verses 7 through 10. And again, we're going to see kind of like a a call and repeat here. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Selah. Everybody loves a parade, right? Olive loves a parade. Olive really loves parades. But we haven't had many in the last couple of years, obviously. But Olive's favorite parade, I think out of all parades of all times, is the Livingston County St. Patrick's Day Parade. And I think it's because they throw candy. I'm pretty sure it's because they throw candy. And she's racked up pretty good at that parade in the past. I think it's just candy. I think she just loves candy. She probably could care less about the parade, actually. (laughs) This processional, this parade that is marked by this psalm would have been really special. Don't need candy when the presence of God is marching through. The Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that housed important historical artifacts from Israel's past, but more importantly, the very presence of God was coming through. In the Old Covenant, this is how God's presence was made available to his people. Now, God was always, will always be omnipresent. But his presence was made especially available to his people through the ark, which was housed in the tabernacle and later after David's time in the temple. But there were very strict rules and limitations on who could access the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, for those living in Jerusalem, this was likely the only occasion that they would see it. Would be this processional or maybe later on when a processional came through after Israel had been victorious in battle and it was led back into the city. This would have been the only time that anyone would have been able to see it unless you were the high priest. And even then, the high priest could only see it once a year. It was special. But it was limited. Then, still under the old covenant, Jesus came. He tabernacled among us. His presence was here. But even that was also limited. Because it was in one person. The son of David David, who came to Jerusalem was a man who himself was the presence of God. So Jesus came in human form. But because of physical limitations, he was only present where he was physically. So the presence of God in one person. Jesus, who was 100% God and 100% human. But now, under the new covenant, initiated with the shedding of his blood on the cross, his burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. And his spirit is present, residing within all believers everywhere. No longer confined by location or certain times of the year. 
the high priest could go before the presence of God in the Old Covenant, but he could only do it once a year. Day of Atonement. But now, when you're at your child's soccer game, God is present through his Holy Spirit within you. When you're working and you're stressed out by a deadline that just seems insurmountable, the very presence of God is with you and in you. You don't have to run to Jerusalem only to be able to enter the outer courts because for most of us, that's as far as we would have been able to get. The court of the Gentiles. We would have been in proximity, but we would not have been able to see it. Now, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the one who created the beauty that we see when we walk around Letchworth State Park or when we you know, go see the, the Rockies in Colorado or whatever, whatever tells of his beauty and glory and splendor, he lives within us. even at the dinner table. And so this building that we're in, you know, I I do complain a lot about the roof, but I'm very grateful for this building that we have, that we get to gather together in a climate-controlled room where we're not really worried about anything that's going on around us. But this building is just that. It's a building. It's not the church. It's not even the house of the Lord. You are. We gathered together are the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the house of the Lord. And that's worth having a parade over. And in fact, there was one. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Christ died on the cross, he not only forgave you of your sins, as if that weren't enough. He canceled the record of debt that stood against you. He disarmed Satan and all enemies, and he held a parade. This triumph that is spoken of in verse 15 was a military parade. The military parades that Paul had in mind was the Roman triumph, a military victory parade. And in this triumph, captives, spoils, animals, armor, sometimes even models of battlefields would precede the victorious general in the parade as they flowed into Rome after a victory. He would be followed by his soldiers who would be singing. And finally, the vanquished enemy would be led into Rome in shame for all to see and to mock. This isn't the only parade, though. It didn't just happen one time and then it was done. There's more parades. So if you love parades, we've joined in a really great parade. Because it happens continually. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing to one fragrance from death to death. To the other fragrance from life to life. 
who is sufficient for these things, for we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So this triumphal parade is an ongoing thing. Christ is always leading us in triumphal procession. It's an ongoing parade. It's an ongoing victory. The victory that he won, it was final, it was permanent, but it's also ongoing. His spirit is in us. And that spirit in us, the Holy Spirit in us, is a fragrance of Christ to all who are around us. To one a fragrance of life and to another the fragrance of death. And so we can trust that the word of Christ will not return void. As Christ is seen in us and through us, our words, um, how we live, it will produce either life in, in some, in that they will come to belief in Christ, and to some it will produce death, in that they will see, they will hear, and they will reject. Paul shows us in this passage that the parade of victory of Christ's finished work continues on and on. And we've been invited into this parade through what the king of glory has done. And one interesting thing to note about the Roman triumph, according to the Roman historian Livy, a triumph could only be granted if the commander had brought his army with him and concluded the war with surety. And there's apparently one instance in history that we have recorded where a general showed up on his own, and he was locked out of the city. He didn't bring his army with him. There was no proof he won his war. The victory had to be won, and his soldiers had to be with the general. Jesus has brought us with, both as spoils and victors, in the war. So we kind of get a double benefit. He's rescued us from our sin. He's redeemed us, but he's also counted us as his own. So we're both spoils and victors. We are who he sought to redeem, the spoils that he desired. And Jesus is the one who accomplished this victory, and it is final. He won the victory. The war is over. And we're united with him in his death and resurrection, so his victory has become our victory. We have a share in this. And the victory that he's won is sure. As we look back at the text that we've been looking at this morning, verses 7 through 10, specifically here, what we see is a call and repeat. So the procession, as they come to the gates of Jerusalem, they would cry out, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now the gates themselves would not lift up their heads. They were not animate beings. Um, This idea of lifting up your heads is kind of an ancient way of saying, Rejoice. Be happy. And so fling those gates open wide because here we come. The guards would reply, who is this king of glory? And the procession would respond, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And this would then repeat. The guards would ask again, who is this king of glory? And the second time the procession would conclude by saying, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Why did they repeat it? Were the guards hard of hearing? Were they not convinced? No. Uh, This liturgy of this procession is repeated so that it would be emphatic that the Lord, the King of hosts, the, the mighty one in battle, strong and mighty, that he is the King of glory. In, in both Hebrew and Greek, ancient languages, when something is repeated, it's emphatic. Doubling down on that, that phrase. It's, it's repeating it to show that this means what it means. We see that often Jesus would say, as our Bibles often translate it, verily, verily, or truly, truly. He's saying this thing is emphatically true. So when this repeats itself, it's not because the guards 
just weren't convinced. They just want it to be known to all who are listening that it's the Lord who is mighty. He is the one who is strong in battle. He is the king of glory. And in the gospel, we come to know that it is Jesus that David anticipated in this psalm. Jesus is the king of glory. He triumphed over Satan, death, hell, and the grave. And although God the Son enjoyed eternal glory in the presence of the Father, he drew near to needy sinners. He is the true king of glory. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king over all the world. And one day he will come at the end of history to establish a kingdom that is eternal. A kingdom with no end. And we look forward to that day. A couple points of application this morning. First of all, rest in the victory that Christ has won. It was final. This is your victory. Your hands are now clean if you've believed. You've been clothed in his robes of righteousness. And so you've been liberated to live for the Lord by the power of his grace. Second, remember that the presence of God is with you. Let that be a joy to you this morning. That he is always near. He's nearer than your next breath. You don't have to go to a certain building. And as I said, I love to gather. We should love to gather. We should love to be together. But you are the house of the Lord. He is with you. He is in you. He is near. 